You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. You did, you did not leave us in the dark. You revealed yourself to us so that we can know your character. And I pray that we would treat your word with respect and honor, understanding that all of this story that you tell in these many, many pages is one story. And that our lives is all a part of that same story because it's all your story. This morning, Father, would you open ears who are, that are closed, open eyes that are closed. Help us to be drawn up close to you. May your Spirit's presence be with us this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. O oh God, my rock and my redeemer, and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated. All right, so uh, if you don't know, for 12 years, my wife Sarah and I lived in Kansas City, Missouri, uh, home of the best football team in all the land and the worst baseball team in all the land. Uh, we lived in Kansas City for a long time. That meant we were separated from a lot of our family. We didn't get to see a lot of family, particularly on my side. My side just didn't get to come up a whole lot, maybe two or three times in the 12 years we were there. And so my sister, uh, she's got four kids, and we, we valued building a relationship with our nieces and nephew. And so um, every now and then uh, during the summer, we would uh, contact my sister and say, hey, like, can you send some of your kids up? Now, she's got four. I don't do that many kids. So we were like two at a time. That's all we're doing. Uh, so we, she would send up two kids at a time, and they would stay with us for a week or two weeks. And it was a blast. Like, we'd show them around Kansas City, get to know our family a little better, get, let them get to know us, and all this. Uh, and I think it was our, their last trip up before we moved back to Paragould. Uh, two of our nieces came up, uh, the oldest two. And one of them, uh, her name's Callie. Uh, she's a notorious, well, whatever. Uh, Callie came up and... She begins to tell us this grand story. It's, it's, it's a great story, in my opinion. Uh, she went to go to see the movie Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. And she went to watch that with my mom and one of her sisters, right? And if you know the Harry Potter saga and the story, uh, I'm not going to, like, ruin it all for you, but uh, at the end of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, a particular main character is murdered by another character, Right? My niece, Callie, said she had read the seventh book, and my mom had read the seventh book, but my other niece had not read it. And so when they finished watching this movie, and this murder takes place, uh, my, my, the other niece uh, exclaims at the end of the movie, I knew he was evil! And uh, my niece, Callie, and my mom, like, caught eyes and had this, like, really intimate inside joke about how they knew the end of the story, uh, which I don't want to ruin that either. But... They knew the real end of the story. And so they had this nice, sweet moment of connection. And, you know, my mom had passed away five years before she told me this story. So, like, it's a, a treasured memory, my niece says. It's one problem. That scene happened. 
This whole interaction happened. The characters of that scene are not what she said. My niece was not there. Her sister was not there. But she was telling me this as though she was. And how do I know this to be true? It happened to me. That was me, my mom, and my wife. My wife had not read the final book. She didn't know what happened at that point. And when my, at the end of the mo- movie, my wife goes, I knew he was evil. And me and my, my mom caught eyes. And we have this nice, treasured, intimate moment where we have an inside joke on my, my, my wife. Now, my niece had heard this story somewhere. Maybe she heard me tell it to somebody, but she couldn't remember where she heard it. So she starts to tell us this story. And I let her go the whole gamut. I let her see how far she can go. She tells us this story having no clue. She's actually talking to the person to which this actually happened. She put herself in the center of my story. And of all the stories that she could have put herself in the middle of, that is one of my most treasured memories with my mom who passed away a few years after that. So she took my very close, very intimate story with my mom, took me out of that story, and placed herself right in the middle of it. Now I can only imagine that this is exactly what we do when we believe that our story, our life, our existence is the center of the universe, is the center of history. And the truth is, God is at the center. This is all God's stories, putting ourselves at the center of this story, viewing ourselves, forgetting who's at the center, is essentially the same thing as the original sin in the Garden of Eden. And the fact that we have to be reminded about that, the fact that we have to be reminded that we're not the center of the universe, as you might go, oh yeah, I knew that, but I do forget it. That fact just shows us how deeply seated sin is deep in our hearts. That we don't even, even if we call God Lord, we so often see ourselves as the center of the story. And so through this series that we're going through, we've been walking through for a few weeks, this good reminder that this is, we're all living in the midst of God's story. And this book, while you might get stuck in the weeds, you might get stuck trying to, trying to figure aspects of it out, this book is telling one overarching grand narrative story. It's God's story. And so in this series, we want to tell the story of God. This God who created a good and beautiful world. He put mankind in it and he gave humanity this chance, this opportunity, this, this power to be able to choose who they're going to trust. Am I going to trust the creator God or am I going to trust myself and Ultimately, you know that we trust in ourselves and we introduce this sin crisis into the world. And today we're going to see that God does not abandon his creation even though we have failed. And rather, he introduces promise after promise after promise to redeem and restore his creation to its original order. This is the story of God. So Jared introduced us the last couple of weeks to the first two aspects of the story that God created the world and that man introduced the sin crisis and we've made it through the first 11 pages of 11 chapters of the bible which if you're like sitting there thinking we've made it this far we have this far to go this is going to be the longest uh series of your life uh we'll be in this series until you're gray-haired um no worries we're going to speed it up quite a bit because today we're going from genesis 12 through malachi so we're hitting that much of the bible before you hit the exits we're not going to be hitting every single passage so you will be able to get to lunch no worries okay 
Uh, we're going to be like flying through here. The, the, the great thing about even having that tactic of how we're going to be hitting the rest of the Old Testament today is just to show you again, though there are main characters throughout the Bible, though you know these stories of people like David and, and Ruth, Moses and Elijah, they are not the main character of this word. This is God's story. You are not the main character of your life. This is God's story. So this morning, we continue looking at God's story through the topic of covenant. Now, I doubt covenant is a word that you use very much in your everyday conversation, unless you're like just like super into theology. Um, but this, is, this idea of covenant is vital to understanding God's story from the beginning. And so this morning, I want us to just answer three questions as we, we walk through covenant. The first one is, what is a covenant? So we're going to talk about that, what the covenant even means. What is God's covenant with Abraham? And then finally, what is God's covenant with us? So first up, what is a covenant? So right off the gate, a covenant is a type of promise. It's an agreement. It's a, a sort of relational contract. You see covenants in marriages, right? You, you also might see them uh, if you form a company as a partnership, LLC. Like that's a covenant. It's a relationship based on a, like a contract and an agreement. A covenant is more than a relationship it's also more than an agreement tim keller says a covenant is a bond that creates a particular kind of relationship it's a relationship which on the one hand is much more intimate and personal than a relationship based only on a legal contract but on the other hand it's a relationship far more durable and binding and unconditional than a relationship based only on personal affection and feeling it's a stunning blend of law and love. So marriage is this blend of law and love. A bride and groom make vows to one another, not, not typically out of compulsion or in some transactional mindset, but out of love. Each side has made a promise of love, a promise to fulfill agreed-upon conditions. We'll see throughout the Bible that God always relates to people in covenant in this blend of law and love obedient love you might call it keller goes on to talk about how people oftentimes uh see god in this one dimensional aspect of life though they see god either as like this old testament mean god who's going to lay down the law and smite you when you step out of line or they might view this lovey-dovey god who's just going to accept everyone for exactly how they are. He's not going to try to change you. He's not going to try to step on your toes and all this. It's one or the other. It's how our world often sees God. God tells his people throughout the Old Testament that they must obey him. They must listen to him and trust him and do what he says, or they will suffer the consequences. It looks like covenant is simply conditional. God will love you if you don't step across the line. But there's also dozens and dozens of places, oftentimes right along with where he's given these consequences, where God still promises, I will never reject you. I will never forsake you. So which is it? Is covenant about the conditions of your obedience? Or is covenant about the measure of God's love for you? If you see the Old Testament God as mean, what do you do about the, the New Testament Jesus as God as loving and meek and mild? What do you do with this? How you view God and His covenant is 
one of, if not the most important way you relate to God. God is always relating through covenant. So the topic of covenant is vital to your understanding of this entire story of God. Paul Gentry says that covenants are the backbone of all of God's word. If you don't have a backbone, you can't stand up, right? So what is a covenant? It's this relational contract which blends law and love. So to see God's covenant throughout the Old Testament, let's jump back in the text we read earlier, and then we're going to advance through the Old Testament quite a bit, but what was God's covenant with Abram? And by the way, I think most of us in the room know his name was eventually changed to Abraham. So if I say Abraham instead of Abram, like, just be cool with it, right? Um, back in Genesis 12, we find this man named Abram. Uh, he is eight generations removed from Noah and the flood. And God gives us this genealogy to this random man and tells us that he's told to leave his country and his father and go to another land. It says in verse 2, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. Now, this comes sometime after the Tower of Babel. I have no idea how long. I don't believe it actually says where in his genealogy the Tower of Babel happened. But if you remember from Genesis 11, after the flood, people had populated the world. And they decide in verse 4, they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we make a name for ourselves. It's interesting to see that this exact type of thing that got these people in trouble is part of the promise from God to Abram. I'll make your name great. Not you making your name great. I, is what God says. And by God doing it, that gives God the glory of making it done. God initiates a covenant with Abram. Abram's one condition at this point is simply go. The promise he gives Abram is interesting too, though, because everything he's leaving is what God has promised him. He says, go from your country, go from your people, go from your father's presence. God's telling that he's about to give him a, a, a people, a place, and a presence. Abraham, leave your people. I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham, leave your place, leave your land. I'm going to give you the promised land. Abram, leave the presence of your earthly father. I'm going to be so intimately close to you that I can bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. A place, a people, and a presence. Abram obeys and, and heads out with a group of people that he already has, and he goes to the place God has promised in his presence. So we start seeing this come to fruition. It takes a long time, but we'll get back to this. We're going to jump forward a little bit. It says, later we see that the family of God has started to grow. Uh, Abraham's grandson, now at this point, Jacob, he has 12 sons. And the family's growing. They live in the land God has promised. They don't have full possession, but they live there. They're getting a glimpse of God's presence throughout their lives. But then a travesty happens when some of the brothers of Jacob's sons decide to sell one of the other ones into slavery. He gets taken to Egypt. Then eventually a famine happens, right? And all of their family has to go to Egypt to be saved by that son who got sold into slavery who's now in charge of Egypt, right? All's good except they end up living there for 400 years. And most of that time as slaves to Pharaoh. 400 years is a long time, right? It's a long time. And the Bible is just like, whoop, right to the next thing. 400 years. We were making our first colony in America 400 years ago. That's how long ago 400 years is. By the time of Moses, 
They have the people. They have so many people. It scares Pharaoh that he starts giving, having uh, baby boys murdered because he's afraid of them growing too large. They certainly don't have a place. They don't feel God's presence there. And so God frees them from slavery. He brings them closer to the promised land. Things are looking up for them. They definitely have the people, well over a million. They're seeing God's presence in the wilderness and through Moses as their prophet. And they're on their way to the place that he promised them. Things are looking up. But then, then they begin to distrust God. They begin to make idols for themselves. They go back to the pagan worship that they had in Egypt. They start adopting new pagan worship that they're uh, in, in the promised land, in the wilderness. God knows that they don't know any better. They spent 400 years in a foreign land, so he begins to give them instructions. He gives them the law. Here's how to live best. Here's how to be the people I created you to be. The law was meant to be a way to lead the people to healthy lives with God at the center of their lives. And when they could not uphold the law, as he knew they wouldn't be able to, he gave them a, a sacrificial system, which might be weird to us, but it's a way of paying for their wrongdoing. In essence, God gave them a law, but he also loved them so much, he gave them a way to turn back to him when they would destroy the relationship. And what you see as you read through the Old Testament there on out is this vicious cycle, a pattern that repeats over and over again. And one of my college professors liked to call it a, a soap opera, As Israel Turns. Uh, so you see at the top, they, they begin to trust God. Everything's good. Then they get their eyes caught on something, and they fall to some idols. And in falling to idols, they eventually suffer the consequences. Some of those consequences are often being taken into exile, being taken over by another land for a moment. And while they're in exile, they, they realize how dark it is. They begin to cry out to God, and God raises up a leader. And this leader comes in and helps free Israel, and they are restored back to trusting God, only to then what? fall to idols again. It's a vicious cycle that comes over and over again. And in some ways, is that not my life and your life? I know it's for me. I could be in a good spot. I'm trusting God. All is good. Even if it's hard, all is good because there's God in my life and then something catches my attention. Something catches my eye and I begin to doubt God. Some part of me that wants to make this story all about me, my pleasure. And I turn away from God. And then in my darkest places, I cry out for God. I ask Him to save me. In my bright and sunny places, I can be deceived into thinking that I am God. I doubt His goodness. And I trust that stuff or people is what's going to actually satisfy me. Do you identify with that? Now remember back to the original covenant with Abram. God said, I'll make your name great. Why? He said, you'll be a blessing and in verse 3, it says, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God did not choose Abraham to be an isolated worshiper of God. He did not choose Israel to be an isolated holy nation of God. He chose them to be a light to the nations, to be a blessing to the nations. But instead, as the people enter the promised land, we see that they become a copy of the nations. Worshiping idols, moving towards inappropriate sexual relationships, moving towards child sacrifices. Like the Canaanites in the land, the Bible tells us that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. So after Moses and then eventually just got Joshua as their leaders, they, they start to have these judges. 
which are like military generals. But they go through this cycle over and over and over, and they eventually outright reject God as their king in 1 Samuel. They tell Samuel, who was supposed to be their leader at that time, they say, we want to be like the other nations. So they're just explicit. We just want to copy other nations. So give us a king. God reassures our hurt Samuel that it's, it's not Samuel they've rejected, it's God as their king that they have rejected. So eventually Israel gets a good king that they long for. David was a man after God's own heart. He even brought peace to the land. But like the holiest king in their history raped the woman and had her husband murdered. All this time, once they got in the promised land, they'd had this tabernacle while they were in the wilderness, this big tent where God's presence was supposed to dwell. Finally, David's son Solomon gets the honor of building the temple. So now Israel has a people. They have a place. And they have this temple, so they have God's presence. But again, that cycle returns. Solomon, promiscuity uh, with, with women led them to pagan idol worship. And it introduced uh, Israel back into this cycle, and they fell hard, and they fell fast. And after Solomon, uh, the kingdom is ripped in two. So now you have Israel and you have Judah, two different kingdoms. And Judah had a couple here, good kings here and there that kind of turned them back to God. Israel pretty much never did. But as a whole, for the most part, this nation of Israel does not obey the covenant. Both halves of the kingdom would face exile by a conquering nation as a consequence for their failure to uphold the covenant. And before that happened, uh, God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah because he, he since God sees that the people are just trying to treat him like a genie, treat him like, like some kind of magic, like I can just do this, I can make this sacrifice, I can say these prayers and God will forgive me. He wants to let them know that he, they cannot just bend him into their will. He wants them to, to turn to him with a, with a repentant heart, a love for God. The people fell short of the law. They always did. But they also fallen short of loving God, too. And so in exile, there's basically no people. There's no place and there's no presence. But there is still a promise. A promise that God will save a remnant of people. He's going to bring them back to their place. He's going to help them rebuild the temple which was destroyed for the presence of God to dwell. And God never stopped pursuing them. And he never stopped loving them. Soren Kierkegaard says this in a, a book I read. He said, You have loved us first, O God, alas. We speak of it in terms of history. As if you loved us first but a single time. Rather than without ceasing, you've loved us first many times and every day and our whole life through. So after hundreds and hundreds of years, from the covenant of Abraham to the exile, God has been faithful to the covenant in regards to Israel. And as all human beings do, Israel broke their side of the covenant time and again. Now I want to point out that this covenant that we've focused on so far, that we see God made with Abraham, is not the only covenant that God makes in the Old Testament. In fact, we see throughout the Old Testament, God makes various covenants with his people in different phases. So back in the garden even, uh, last week we saw God make a promise to humanity. As he's cursing the serpent, Satan, he makes a promise to humanity that he would send an offspring of Eve to defeat the enemy. After the flood, God promises Noah that he will never again wipe all of humanity from the face of the earth. 
And as we see in this promise to Abraham, he promises to bless him with a, a large family for the purpose of being a light to the nations. And with Moses, we see God make a promise to make Israel a holy nation and to protect them if they would just trust him and follow his instructions for life. With David, we see a flawed man, but a repentant man. And he receives this promise of a kingdom that would never die. There would one day be a son of his who would sit on the throne forever. And then when Judah was on the, the, the edge of being exiled, God spoke of a new covenant through the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 31, he says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. That's the good news. And we see that God keeps pursuing his nation to be a holy nation, to be the light to the world. He didn't do away with the law. He says he put the law in their minds and on their hearts. The law is good and important. God also keeps on pursuing their hearts and their relationship. And this new covenant is still about God loving his people. He remembers their sin no more. He talks of himself as a husband to a bride. In the new covenant, these these two are reconciled, law and love. There's, there's no choosing between the two. God is both perfectly holy and loving. And it's not just through Jeremiah that God promises this. Also through Ezekiel, I believe it's chapter 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You'll be my people, and I'll be your God. He gives us a spirit which does what? It enables us to follow his decrees and keep his laws. He says, you will be my people. I will be your God. I will never leave you. I'll never abandon you even though you keep running away from me. Law and love. And it's not like it's at this point in the story that God has suddenly become this gracious God who wants to forgive that he wasn't in the past. This blend of law and love has been God's character from the very beginning. We mentioned last week that even in the the punishment of Adam and Eve, he provided clothes for them to cover their shame and their nakedness. God put a mark on Cain after he killed his brother Abel, to protect him, even after he killed his brother. But look with me again at uh, Genesis, but jump over to chapter 15. Uh, Abraham is being honest with God. He's angry that God has not given him the family that he promised. It's been years since Abraham followed God away from his father and people and place to trust God to do what he promised. He's, he's now he's gone down to Egypt because of a famine during this time. Uh, he and his nephew Lot, their like, livestock got so big, they even had to separate. And then Lot got captured, so he had to go to war. Like, a lot has happened. I realize it's like 
two-page turn, but a lot has happened. And, and, and God tells Abraham, don't be afraid. I'm your shield, your very great reward. And that's when Abraham seems to lose it. He gets so angry with God saying, you have not given me a child, and this other person in my family is going to just get everything of mine. And then God doubles down. He says, look in the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how large your family will be. He reiterated that the land would be his family's land. So Abraham, he asked for evidence. How can I know that this is true? And God had Abraham perform a ceremony that, that might be weird to us. And honestly, if it's not weird to you, you you're the weird one. I'll be honest. Uh, he has Abraham cut three animals in half, right down the middle, and spread their carcasses apart. Take them a little bit ways apart. And then God caused Abraham to go into a sleep. So he, he watched him for a little while, then he goes to sleep. And what we see is God passes through the carcasses as a blazing torch to confirm his promise to Abraham. There's kind of a photo of it. You see the animals split in half. There's a torch passing through. Kind of weird. The text says this is God making a covenant with Abraham to promise him that the land will be his. Now, let's be honest. Ceremonies can be weird sometimes, right? Like, if you're uh, completely new to the Christian faith, you come into a church and they're taking communion, which we say is Jesus' body and blood, like, that's kind of weird, right? Uh, You see, like what we did last week, somebody come on stage and share their story and then we dip them in water and take them out. That's kind of weird. Let's just be real. That's weird. Um, But what they're doing is they're making an oath. Now, I preached like 40 or 50 sermons in my life. I never once brought up Harry Potter. I'm a big Harry Potter fan. You're going to get it twice in one sermon. So that same story, uh, Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince, there's a scene that begins the book. And the guy on the left, Professor Snape, is making a, a vow, an oath, with this mom of a student. It's called the Unbreakable Vow. And the main character, Harry Potter, had heard this phrase, Unbreakable Vow, and he's asking his friend Ron, like, what is an unbreakable vow? And it says, Ron says, well, you can't break an unbreakable vow. Harry said, I'd work that out uh, for, for myself, funnily enough. What happens if you break it then? And Ron says, you die. You cannot break an unbreakable vow. You die. In this foreign ceremony to us that God performs with Abraham in his sleep, God passes through the carcasses. Now, typically, two people would pass through the carcasses. And what they're saying, essentially, is, as I walk through these dead animals, should I not hold up my end of the bargain? May I die like these animals have died? You want to do that at the next wedding you're going to? Put some dead animals right here. But in this instance, only God passes through as the flaming torch. So what God is saying is, I know you will never hold up your end of the bargain. You will never keep the covenant that I'm making with you, but I absolutely will hold up mine. Even if that means I have to shed my own blood to fulfill on my promise. So only God takes on this blood oath to be faithful to the promise he's made with Abraham. Only God will have to die if the covenant is not fulfilled. And if you think, okay, I'm listening to all this. Listen, I'm not Jewish. I'm not in Abraham's family. What do all these promises have to do with me? Paul says in Galatians 3.29, if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to 
the promise. So if that's you, this new covenant that Jeremiah and Ezekiel are talking about applies to you. And so a covenant's important without a doubt. The entire Bible is God's covenant with his people over and over again. Is the covenant based on human obedience? Or is it based on love? The answer is yes. You see, God became fully human in Jesus Christ and fulfilled all the conditions of the covenant so that when you believe in him, he will be committed to you unconditionally forever. Jesus fulfilled God's law. Jesus fulfilled God's love. His obedience. His love. And in one way, he has also promised to you a people and a place and a presence. The people that he's promised to you first and foremost is the triune God himself. To be in unity with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's also promised you this church family, which I'll be honest, on this side of heaven is sometimes disappointing. But in the best of times, like this church family is our lifeline. They push us back to treasuring Jesus. He also gives you a place. He says, Jesus tells his disciples in John 14, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. And he gives you a presence because it is only by the blood of Jesus that we may be in the presence of God. And Hebrews chapter 4 says that we're to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Maybe you say that's great. God's faithful. But you know what? He's slow. You're not the first person to think that. We literally just saw Abraham get so angry with God. Because of how slow he felt like he was. He's impatient. The people of Israel, it's been 400 years in slavery, right? 70 years in Babylon. After they got back from Babylon, it's another 400 years before Jesus came. Sometimes there's a big gap between promise and fulfillment. J.R.R. Tolkien says it's in, it's that stretch, it's that tension, it's, it's that utter incompatibility between the promise of God and the realities between how men see them that has always been the stretching space of faith. This is the span of faith. To live between the time of the giving of the promise and the completion of the promise when the promise looks utterly impossible. And to me, honestly, I feel like sometimes we're in that stretch where as a whole, many of us see that promise of God as utterly impossible sometimes. It was At the ascension of Jesus, the New Testament promises us that Jesus will return again and make all things right. And if you read through Paul's letters in the New Testament, it feels like it's going to be any stinking day. And it's been 2,000 years. Throughout thousands of years in God's story, He has been patient and steadfast and faithful. And in our short years, which none of us here even reached 100 yet, We remain impatient, distracted, and unfaithful. But the good news is that God's new covenant is true, and it's not based on your faithfulness, but on Jesus's. Jesus on the cross shows you that God does not take your transgressions of the law lightly. Punishment that is deserved will be served. But Jesus on the cross also shows you that God's love is unending. That Jesus will willingly suffer and die and experience separation from the Father for you. Defeat sin and death for you. Be faithful to the covenant 
that you were unable to be, be faithful to. His faithfulness overcomes our failures. And so as I invite the band back on the stage, I, I have one point of application this morning, which is just look to Jesus. This is the only way that you can find salvation that God has promised. G.K. Peel says, we resemble what we revere, either for our ruin or our restoration. And you see that in the Old Testament. In, in 2 Kings, in his, Israel's history, it says one point that they, they went after false idols and became false themselves. And in Psalm 115, it says that those who make idols become like them. And all, so do all who trust in them. Like you begin to become like what you worship. Your God, your idol reshapes who you are. So it's better to be shaped by the God of the universe who is so gracious and loving to us and worship Christ. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3, he says, revere Christ as Lord. And Paul says in Colossians, set your mind on things above. So I implore to you this morning, get over your mistrust of God. He is faithful. Begin to mistrust your little gods, your little idols, your satisfaction in people. Begin to mistrust that because it will always fail you. Learn that God is more holy than you could ever imagine. He requires more holiness than you could ever come up with. And God is more loving than you ever would hope. He's faithful to His promises. The God of the universe is faithful to the relationship that He desires to have with you. So we're going to stand and sing. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll worship this King. We ought to be more speechless than we ever are about your grace towards us. We can't even fathom how holy you are and what we were created to be like. As Matt read this morning, like, God, will you help us to know the extreme measures of which, like, nothing can separate us from your love. No power. And that even includes ourselves. You cannot separate us from the love which you have poured out on us. And this morning, Father, I pray that there are people in the room that might feel that love for the first time. There are people in the room who have felt that love, but they've begun to doubt that love. Father, will you pour out your love and your grace in this room this morning? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.